Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Good to see the, uh, the Lutheran tradition continues. Coffee and donuts. It's always good to see. And uh, tell me if that's too loud or too soft. You'll, you'll tell me. Is that right? Okay. Very good. Well, I, I told Pastor Feeney that um, be, being Father's Day, it, uh, it might be appropriate to look at what we call the office of fatherhood or the vocation of father in the scriptures. Understand uh, today the, the problems that we have uh, in society, in, in homes, in uh, our world today um, with... Um, we can call it a lack of parenting, a lack of fathering, perhaps. So uh, um, I've done a lot of work in this area. I, I have, I've traveled the synod, and I've done lots of men's-type workshops and seminars. And um, I, I've traced the history of, of how the Western Christian church has become what we call feminized. It's become so feminized in some respects that it's turned men away from the church. So we, we trace that back to three main movements, but especially at uh, about a thousand years ago, things started to change in the Western church that would drive, drive men away from the church. So that, that's not my topic today, even though it's, uh, it's related. But if you ever want me to come back and do a men's seminar, I'm, I'm more than happy to come. Uh, sometimes Friday evenings or Saturdays, and we have breakfast and lunch together. I, I love to do those things and, uh, and bring all the men together. Uh, most congregations I've served, one of my first things I started was a men's type ministry or a ministry to men, and I always would start uh, Saturday morning breakfasts, and uh, I would call it Bible and Bacon. That would draw men in. If not the Bible, the bacon <laughs> would draw them in. <clears throat> so um, I've always enjoyed that here. Anybody know the history of Father's Day? Anybody know that? Uh, at the turn of the century, Mother's Day observances were growing across the United States. The federal government had yet to recognize the holiday, but many already adopted this as the third Sunday in May to honor mothers. And then it was in a church service in 1909. Her name was Sonora Smart Dodd. She was struck with this idea that if we're celebrating mothers, why don't we celebrate fathers as well? So when she was 16, her mother died giving birth to her sixth child, the last of five sons. So single parenthood back then as it is today is challenging to say the least. Well, her father did a wonderful job. He had to raise the children all by himself. So out of her love and esteem for her dad, she believed that this deserved a special day. So from Spokane, Washington, uh, on June the 5th, she uh, petitioned the city to celebrate Father's Day. And so it was there observed officially in 1910 in the state of Washington. The idea officially celebrating fatherhood spread across the United States more and more. In 1924, President Calvin Coolidge recognized Father's Day as the third Sunday in June and encouraged all the states to do the same. 
And so Congress officially recognized Father's Day in 1956 with the pass of a joint resolution. Ten years later, in 66, Lyndon Johnson issued a proclamation calling the third Sunday in June to be recognized as Father's Day. In 1972, President Nixon permanently established the observance of this Sunday as Father's Day. Sonora Dodd died at the ripe old age of 96 in 1978, and uh, she is remembered, if you haven't heard about her, she is remembered to institute this day, which is now over 100 years old as we honor Father's Day. So we have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, we have also Grandparents' Day, and we have something called Siblings' Day. So uh, I don't know what else we do to celebrate the family, but we should be doing more to celebrate the family because the family is deteriorating uh, as, as fast as a house of cards. And we can't believe uh, uh, how things are being redefined, how marriage is being redefined, how, how people can identify uh, with any gender as they feel. And uh, I don't want to say this, but it might come true that one day there may not ever, ever again be a Mother's and Father's Day because we simply won't recognize those gender differences anymore. So we, we should, I think, as a society, celebrate these days because mothers and fathers are important, so important that they are, we can say biblically, they are the salt of the earth. That is, if you want to see a society crumble, see what happens to the influence and the authority of fathers. And so let's get into this a little bit. Uh, let's get into this a little bit. Um, We'll go through some facts and figures. We'll look at our scriptures a little bit. I brought my small catechism. Um, in the small catechism, we have various sections. You know the six chief parts. We also have a, a section in our catechism called uh, the table of duties. Uh, it is the most neglected part of the catechism called the table of duties. Do you know what's in there, the table of duties? It's near the, it's near the front of the catechism. Uh, after the brief introductory uh, sections of the six chief parts, right here on page 35, it says, certain passages of Scripture for various holy orders and positions, admonishing them about their duties and responsibilities. Well, it starts off, like I, I sort of preached on today, it starts off with the duties and responsibilities of pastors. Right? What's a pastor to do? And then the next session is what the hearers owe their pastors. And then the next section is on citizens, and then to husbands, to wives, to parents, to children, to workers of all kind. Um, the section for parents mentions only this one verse, Ephesians 6, 4, specifically fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then, and then you go through the rest of the catechism, and Martin Luther, um, uh, Martin Luther brought this teaching back into the church, what, which was lost. Justification by faith is the main teaching that came out of the Reformation. That is, how is one saved? How do we get to heaven? How is one's sins forgiven? We're justified freely by Christ's death on the cross, his merits, not our merits. So that had to be reestablished, re justification. And Luther came to see these things by reading Galatians and by reading Romans, by reading through the Psalms, by reading the Bible. He came to see that 
God was not his judge, but his loving heavenly father, a father. So he came, he, he came to recapture this fatherly image of God in the Bible. Not as a stern judge, but as someone who exercised love and mercy. And of course, we, we get that, especially in the parable of the prodigal son. There you see, especially in that wonderful parable, the father's heart, to two sons who refused their father's goodness and kindness, but he still loved them. The, the second teaching recaptured in the Reformation is the teaching on vocation. Vocatio, which means your calling in life. And we all have various callings, we have various vocations. Back then, it was deemed that you couldn't really serve God properly or rightly unless you were an officially called servant of God, that is, a priest or a nun uh, or a cardinal or someone who worked in the church. You, you had a better position before God because of that standing. Well, Luther discovered, no, he, he would say things like, uh, even, even a, a milkmaid, even a milkmaid who was milking cows served God in her vocation just as much as any priest or nun. And so he recaptured this idea, scriptural idea, that, that our, our main vocations are what we should be pronouncing in our churches too. Now I have many vocations. I, I am a husband. I'm called to be a husband, a father. By the way, my son Mark came with me today on Father's Day. There's my son right there. He's going to take me out to lunch afterwards. <laughs> That's his treat for me, right? Uh, uh, I, I'm a professor. I also have different hats at the seminary. I, I used to be a pastor. I can no longer say I'm a pastor anymore. That, that kind of bothers me in a way. I, I miss being a pastor. But you also have vocations and callings. A lot of men I know uh, tend to uh, look at their main vocation in life is, is their work is their job, and, and other vocations seem to take a, a back seat to that. Um, I work at this company, or I'm a police officer, uh, I serve in the military, and th these are all vocations given by God to serve the needs of our family, to provide for our families, to serve the needs of our neighbor. Yes, we pay taxes. You ever think of paying taxes as a citizen? Your vocation as citizen, uh, paying taxes, also serves the needs of your neighbor? Yes, it does. It does. It helps our neighbor as we, as we um, help others. Uh, different, different view of that. Um, I would always like us to think that um, our main callings are the ones that God places us in the family. Uh, lots can be said about small group ministry in the church. The better idea of small group ministry is, is the family unit that God places us in. There, there the Word of God is taught, there the Word of God is disseminated, there the Word of God is shared in that family unit. As I teach classes on parenting, I've also come to realize over these many years that when our youth get confirmed, the statistics are proven that half of them in the Missouri Synod never come back. Half of our children that are confirmed at the age of 13 or so they don't return to church until, until when? 
until they have their first child. They want to get their child baptized. So they come back for that. So my, my question earlier on as a pastor is, is why is this a phenomenon in the, in the Lutheran church that our children who are taught the word of God don't return? It's really a bad problem. Really bad. And then I discovered that it depends also a lot upon the faith of the parents, the activity of the parents. That is, are the parents active in their faith? Do they actually go to church? Do they actually pray at home? Do they, do they share the scriptures with their children on a regular basis? And so I discovered this over time that, okay, the, the ministry has to shift. The ministry has to shift from being a, a, a church-centered ministry to being a family-centered ministry where the church plays an assisting role. That is, no longer is the church to be seen as what we call drop-off service. I'm going to drop my kids off, and I'll come back and pick them up. The only time they hear about God is in these four walls. They never hear about God anywhere else. So I, I've discovered that there's a great need out there to help teach and train and equip our parents to pass on the faith, especially, especially the fathers. When I got married, my, my wife, who grew up in a, in a pastor's home, she was a PK, well, my father-in-law, who was a pastor, had what, what they called home devotions every day. What is that? I never grew up like that. I never saw my father pray. I never saw my father read the Bible. Not that he wasn't a faithful man. He, he went to church and but he often never talked about his faith. Um, our young men, our boys need models. They need models to grow into. They do. And so when our first child was born, our Anna, our, our daughter, uh, she got to a certain age, around two or three, and my wife presented me with a book. She says, here you go. Here's a book. This is your job. Oh, thank you very much. What is it? And it was a devotion book for three-year-olds. My wife was trying to say, in a polite way, in a nice way, that you're, you're the leader of this family, and you're like my father. You're going to lead us in devotions at home. So she gave me the book. And of course, I'd never done this before. And, and here, I'm a seminarian. I'm training to be a pastor. And I've never done this before. So my wife, in her way, said, now, you're the leader. You, you will lead me and my children in, in the Scriptures at home. And so I, I learned. I had to learn how to do it, and I'm still learning. And I'm trying to help others learn how to do it, too. It's, it's an ongoing process of uh, uh, taking time out. And I can say this before my son. We, we uh, always did it right after supper, right? Sometimes we clear dishes away. Sometimes we wouldn't. We'd bring out the Bible and the hymnal and other materials, and we would, we would read Scripture, pray together, sing hymns. My wife's a musician. And um, I, I, we have been blessed by that. My, my children have come to see that God, God is not relegated for one or two hours a week, but God is for every time, every place, everywhere, and especially in the home. So I, this is our challenge as, as a church, is, is to help train, equip um, uh, parents. Now, there's examples of this in the Scriptures, right? 
Uh, one, one example I can think of is um, young Timothy. When Paul is writing to young Timothy, and uh, his father, Alexander, who was a Greek, a non-believer, wasn't able to raise Timothy in the faith. So who, who did raise Timothy in the faith? His mother and his grandmother, right? Lois and Eunice. And so Paul is commending these two women for bringing Timothy along in the faith to a point where he's going to become a pastor in the church. So an example where, where one parent can't teach, others in the family take up that mantle and they teach where there is a, an emptiness or a void. So the mother and grandmother took that over. In Titus chapter 2, uh, we, we, are, we are told that um, how are young mothers supposed to learn how to train and bring up their children? Who's supposed to teach them? What does it say in Titus chapter 2? The older women in the congregation are supposed to get together with the younger women in the congregation and give all their wisdom <laughs> on how to raise children. How often do you get together in this congregation? Just women's groups and men's groups. And I love it. I love it when I see the uh, generations mix and mingle together. This is the greatest thing. Uh, is, is when uh, the, the older folks, the more experienced folks, get to share their wisdom with the younger folks. That's very biblical. But we, we, tend, we tend to isolate our classrooms. We, we tend to put uh, all the same age groups over here and all this. Uh, and, and so what I discovered late, later in my ministry is that we're going to start mixing the generations together so that we can learn from each other. So my last church, once a month, we had the high schoolers get out of their back room, get off their soft, comfy couches. We, we dragged them out, kicking and screaming, and we brought them into the adult Bible study. And just tables like this. We had round tables. I love round tables. Perfect. And, and then we'd have uh, three high schoolers and three or four older adults sitting together at the same table once a month. It was a new thing. Don't try new things in the Lutheran church. It's hard. Very hard. So we did it. And after the first time or so, do you know who hated it? Who hated it? The younger or the older? Who hated it? The older hated it. Because <laughs> they weren't used to it. They weren't used to talking to a high schooler. Somehow they lost that art or, or didn't connect with them. I don't know what it was. But, but then after a while, after we kept doing it, that's the thing, you got to keep doing it. They all loved it. Oh, my, that was a blessing. They all loved getting together with the younger people and, and sharing, sharing Scripture, sharing their faith. Uh, so, as we get into this, um, we know that Jesus, in His earthly ministry, used this name for God more than any other name. He used the name Father. And God has been Father since the foundation of the world. This is the mystery of the Trinity, he has always been Father. And we get that term especially because of the son, His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, there's not a whole lot of mention of the name Father in the Old Testament. It is mentioned. But it comes more clear and more to the fore when Jesus comes. Uh, he refers to His Father uh, more than any other name in heaven. And He teaches His disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. So in the scriptures, the, the image of fathers comes from God the Father, 
we learn what a father is from God. All earthly fathers learn what God is like through the heavenly father. Of course, we learn, of course, through Jesus. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. I and the father are one. So we, we learn about the face of the father through Christ. It's kind of interesting that Jesus is also called father, not, not to mix up the, the Trinity, Isaiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So this prediction, this prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah, the mention of that name, he is an everlasting father. This refers to Jesus' character, not his position in the Trinity. We'd be co-mixing the substance of the Trinity, but this is his character as a loving father. And this is what Luther discovered. And this is where, where people come to faith and they discover that God, God is not after them. God is not going to destroy them. But rather, God gently leads and guides as a father. Now, um, we refer to God as our heavenly father. If you turn, if you have your scriptures, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 5, I briefly mentioned in today's sermon, we, we see Christ's connection in marriage as the bridegroom to the bride. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 describes our Lord's work as a father. That is, we're taking off on this theme of Isaiah, the everlasting father. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. If someone would like to read that, 14 to 19 in Ephesians 3. Yep, that's right. Exactly. There's some uh, important words here that we should uh, take out. We, we see the words, every family in heaven and on earth is named. So the word for father here in the Greek is, is pater. The word for family in this passage is patria, taken out of the father. So you see that the word for father and family is very closely related. You'll also see also words in the New Testament for the word house or household, which is the word oikos. That's what Luther famously used when he would talk about the vocation in the household or the oikos. But here the word patria means a set of individual families, all who have a common father. So this is referring to all of us who have been called by God into his family. He becomes our Father. Jesus also, therefore, becomes 
our brother, our brother in the faith. And when I teach, when I teach my, my men's classes, one of the issues of the feminization of Christianity came to be this, is how we often refer to God or refer to Jesus. Now, men in general cannot identify with Jesus as their bridegroom. You get that? Men, most men can't think of Jesus as their groom. Now, it wasn't meant in an individual sense. It was meant as a corporate sense. We are all the bride of Christ, the church. Men have a hard time thinking in those, those ways. Um, so much so that there, there was a man um, who, who wrote um, from the Song of Songs, and his name escapes me for a second, just jumped out of my head, but... He wrote it for the women in his congregation that would appeal to women, that you can fall in love with Jesus because he is truly your bridegroom. Well, as you can tell, that um, th this ventured off into Roman Catholicism eventually, where, where nuns, they, they took a vow of celibacy because, of course, they, they married Christ. They became the bride of Christ themselves. Well as these things take off in the church, it, it, it takes men away. Men don't speak in this kind of language. But when you start talking about Jesus as your brother, it brings men back. It's the vocabulary they can identify with. Uh, and, you, and you talk in warrior language and, and the, you know, Ephesians chapter 6 and take up the sword of the Spirit and the armor of God and the breastplate of righteousness. And so... Uh, what I've done over the years is try to paint the picture of the warfare of the Christian life. And a lot of the hymns out of the Reformation were warfare-like. They were. Because we're battling an enemy called the devil. Men, men as leaders, take up your swords, take up the cross, follow Christ into this battle. Men respond to that kind of language. So as we preach, as preachers preach, we have to be cognizant of where people are at and we use all kinds of language. We use the full counsel of God. We preach all of Scripture and leave nothing out. But there's a tendency in the Christian church to begin to cater to certain kinds of people. Back in the Middle Ages, the church catered to women. And that was the beginning of the feminization of the church. So Luther tried to bring it back, and he did for a while with his imagery of the battle and the three enemies that we have, and uh, the, our battle hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, etc., etc. So Luther saw this. But according to God as our Father, what do we see in this text? It says that from God, the Father, all lineages of fathers come. All the families are related from this one Father. He grants according to his riches. It says he strengthens us with power. He reaches even into our inner beings and desires our eternal salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now it says that this is not a checklist. It expresses the essence of God, that he's a loving heavenly father and we are his patria. We are his dear children. That is, the emphasis is more than reward, it's more than chiding, it's more than disciplining our children, it is a relationship of love. It's even 
more than teaching. He who instituted family in the first place now draws us into his own family where he reveals himself as a loving God and a generous God towards us. I mentioned uh, the prodigal son. There the father loved his two sons in spite of their disrespect, their discontentedness. We get a picture of the heavenly father through this parable in Luke chapter 15. Generous, patient, merciful, tender. And then we read in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. If someone would turn to Galatians 4, 4 to 5. We all share in this as well. When the fullness of time had come, it starts like that. Go ahead. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. How does God become our Father? How does God incorporate us into His family? How does He do this? The word there is adoption, right? So at one time, you weren't part of the family, and now at one time, you are part of the family. That is, God has adopted you how? Through baptism. Right. So in a real manner, in a real way of speaking, before a person is baptized, if you look at an infant, a child, um, they, they are not part of God's kingdom until they are baptized. I don't want to go into all the nuances of baptism and infant baptism, but uh, that's why we baptize our children. We baptize babies because we want them to be adopted into God's family and become a part of our family as well. And at the end of the liturgy, we all say together, we welcome you into the Lord's family, a fellow servant with all of us, right? They become adopted. So this is baptismal language in Galatians. Um, in 1 John 3, 1 to 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will have has not yet appeared, but we, know, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So, the names are similar. The pater and the patria. Here in 1 John, it gives the indication that our goal, besides salvation, is to become like God. That is, to become like His character. Now, this is the realm of sanctification. We call it sanctification, growing up in the faith, maturing in the faith. Now, you've heard it said before, and this is very real, you are just like your father. Has your wife ever said that to you? You're just like your father. Or, turn the tail, turn the, turn the tables. You just sounded like your mother there. You acted just like your mother. 
And I vowed, you ever think, I vow I will never be like my mother. <laughs> and then you, you find yourself sounding like your mother. Well, that's, you grew up in this family. And their characteristics became yours. You become more like them more than you realize because you lived and breathed and you ate together. And so the same thing can be said about our relationship to God. And I, and I alluded to it briefly in the sermon today is that we, we become more like the bridegroom as we spend time with him. That is, he will increase and I will decrease. I will become more godlike. Is it measurable? No, we can't really measure it. We're not supposed to. The, the, the key verse there is in John 15, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So our, our sanctification involves hearing the voice of Christ constantly to be in his presence, to be in his word, and we become more and more like him. I must decrease, he must increase, right? From the text for today. Um, we, we can talk about um, how, how marriage prepares men especially, women as well, of course, for, for parenthood. Uh, the whole reason that people get married, the main reason would be to procreate, right? So the union of husband and wife is the union of one flesh, the one flesh being the physical act coming together and also the one flesh of the child, the baby is the one flesh. So this is why we have to be very careful to continue to define marriage based upon scripture. It's, and I always write it on the board, if I had a board I'd write it for you, but it's, it's defined the lifelong union of one man and one woman in one flesh. And you can take that apart and understand what the Bible is teaching. It's lifelong, it's till death do us part. It's one man and one woman that come together in one flesh. And the one flesh union normally produces a child. So I, I tell our young men, um, yeah, seek out, seek out a Christian lady. Go and seek her out and woo her and get her. Make sure that uh, uh, you, you, you know, not all people get married. In fact, Luther said the gift of celibacy was like one in a thousand. And some people had the gift, but not many. So in 1 Corinthians 7, we are instructed to uh, get married or burn. That is your passion. Your passion needs to be controlled in the gift of marriage given to us. So this vocation of fatherhood, that is, in the second table of the commandments, we are called to serve our neighbor, and the neighbor closest to us is first our spouse, and then secondly, our neighbor is our children. So I'd always, I would always tell my congregation that I have many vocations. I am your pastor, but I have two vocations that, do, that does supersede this vocation. I am a husband first, and that relationship is priority. Next to my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife is the priority. I must nurture that relationship above all else. Secondly is my relationship with my children. I must nurture that relationship next, next to the relationship with my wife. And thirdly, yeah, I would be bold enough to say, 
then you all, my dear congregation, you all come third. <laughs> I love you very much. I'm your pastor, but if my family's falling apart, I'm not going to help you much. It's not going to help you if my family, my marriage is falling apart, my children are running away to other gods. It's not going to help. So the priority, as Paul would say, is how can a man lead the, the household of God if he can't lead his own household, right? So, so that, that would be the priority. Um, it's not always workable. In, in some, sometimes I was gone long hours and there was uh, sometimes meetings at night that I couldn't get back to, but, but uh, sometimes I would tell when my children were young, I would say uh, for at the council meeting, I would say, um, you know, it's 8.30, I got to go home, tuck, tuck my kids into bed and pray with them. I want them to hear the prayers from their father at nighttime. So from 7 to 8.30 was the meeting, I'd leave. And you know who really liked that after a while? The pastor that did that. By the way, if you can't get a meeting done in 90 minutes, there's something's wrong. <laughs> 90 minutes is the cutoff time. I mean, the sleep cycle is 90 minutes. Reverse that during the day, that, that our attention span is really 90 minutes. And so 90 minutes, I, I think, is in the Bible somewhere. It's got to be. It has to be. But the, the younger fathers who were serving as elders, they now had permission to go home too. They had a long day at work. And they could go home and pray with their kids. And they said, Pastor, thank you for being that example that it's okay that my vocation as father comes above a lot of other things, even my service in the church, right? That was the medieval vocational stuff. If I could serve the church, if I could serve on three committees and do all this but now you're neglecting your spouse. You're neglecting your children. No. No. No, they need to see dad. They need to, how are they going to learn about the faith if dad isn't teaching them, right? How are they going to do that? So we teach. We teach at home. Uh, let me quote these statistics. This is taken from a book from Gene Edward Veith called Family Vocation. And he says that um, from Ephesians 6, chapter 4, this, this was in the table of duties at the front of the catechism. Remember it said that, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not, what, exasperate your children? Do not provoke your children is another translation, but rather do this, bring them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. So here Paul is indicating to fathers that this is your main task. You are the main evangelist. You are to bring Christ to your family. Don't neglect that. Otherwise, you're going to exasperate your children. What does that mean? Well, you, you, you might, by your inactivity, you might lead them away from God. Um, you might do that. So let me, let me just quote from this. In the Old Testament, according to God's directions, fathers functioned like priests within their families. They were specific father-child rituals, namely circumcision, Passover. Uh, the father would preside. The entire family also would eat and pray and meditate on God's word together under the father's leadership. The father was a primary teacher of scripture to his children. Today, Christian fathers should do everything they can to bring their children to Christ. 
They can do that by taking their children to church, making sure their children learn God's word, both by ensuring their Christian education and by teaching the children themselves, seeking their baptism, establishing a Christian home that lives and breathes the grace of God. In that climate, God's word and the gospel of Christ work on a child to create faith. Most Christians came to faith directly as a result of their upbringing and by the personal influence of their fathers and mothers. Um, evangelism that happens through parents is the natural course of everyday life. It is especially effective. So again, God is pleased to give his gifts by means of these human vocations, his gift of salvation. He often, uh, he often uh, does this through earthly fathers. In the book of Acts, when a man was saved, he brought his whole household with him. Acts 10 to 11, 16 and 18. Mothers also did that as well in Acts 16. God also uses mothers especially to bring their own children to faith. However, today mothers take the lead in the religious life of the family, which can be fitting especially if the father can't do it or the father is unwilling to do it. But the father's spiritual influence is especially profound. Now I want you to listen to this. Statistically, the single most important factor in whether a child will go to church as an adult is whether the child's father did. Now, this was the conclusion of a 1994 study of church attendance in Switzerland. He says, granted, the Swiss have a different culture than Americans do, so perhaps the findings are not completely transferable, but the findings were startling evidence for the impact of fathers on the spiritual lives of their children. Among adults whose father and mother both attended church regularly, 74 attended church, 33% regularly, 41% irregularly. When the father attended irregularly and the mother attended regularly, only 3% of the children became regular attenders. Though 59% would attend sometimes. When the father never attended at all, but the mother went to church faithfully, only 2% became faithful worshipers. But when the father attended church regularly and the mother attended only sometimes, 75% of the grown children attended church, 38% regularly, 37 sometimes. And if the father attended regularly but the mother did not attend at all, the likelihood of their children becoming regular churchgoers becomes even higher. 44% will attend church regularly, 22% sometimes. So the conclusion is, somehow the father's spiritual influence increases in proportion to the mother's lack of interest in the church. One author sums up the findings this way. He says, in short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. 
if a father goes, but irregularly to church, regardless of his wife's devotion, between a half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or on occasion. It's as if the Lord is making it ridiculously simple for fathers to fulfill their duty to bring up their children in the faith. He says all they have to do is go to church. (laughs) And yet, even many fathers find that very difficult to do. So if fathers do such a simple thing as taking children to church on Sunday mornings, their children will be likely to continue to go to church when they grow up, but it has to be the father who goes with them. When the mother takes the kids to church, while the father stays home, the message that the children receive is that church is not that important. When it comes to religion, children, for better or for worse, will tend to emulate what their father does. And now you're all thinking, okay, what did my father do? I'm trying to go back and relive my childhood. Did my father take me to church? What was my father's faith like? Now, there's always exceptions to things, and these are statistics. Um, You know, my my mother was more of the one urging us on to church. Dad kind of tagged along. Um, But later in life, my father's faith grew, and he became an elder of the church and very active. And he died um, uh, two summers ago. And on this Father's Day, I'm honoring his remembrance and, and, uh, and the fact that I'm, I'm um, thankful that he had faith. And he didn't always teach by word, but he, he would teach by example, too. Or you might think that, oh, my husband doesn't come to church, and I have to drag my children to church, and they, they resist it. Why doesn't Dad come? What? And so we have to fight those battles, and it's a hard battle to fight. And so we, as the family here, the body of Christ, we all help one another. And in the case of single parenting, especially when there's just a mother alone, which, by the way, here's, here's, the, here's the amazing statistic. We just finally crossed the 50% mark. It finally happened last year. That is, 48% of the children born in this country, 48% are not born into a family with their natural father. We just crossed that mark last year. That's that's an amazing statistic. Over half of our kids are not growing up with their biological father anymore. There goes our society, right there. Right there, there it is, captured. They have no one to emulate. There are no models for them. There is no one spiritually leading them. That is per se, that is the father. So women take up this task. But we, we, we men in the church, we, we are the family. And so we, we become models and mentors to our younger boys and men in this church when they don't have one at home. So this is a section called um, the, the fatherless child. Um, the marginalization of fathers devastating to our culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it goes on to talk about... Um, the conclusion is this, he says, yes, we, we have talked about the enormous responsibility of fathers, but it seems also that the duties can be remarkably simple, straightforward, and ordinary. A father who wants his children to grow up to be Christian adults, he can start with these few things. Be married to their mother. Or do not divorce her. Do not abandon your children. Be involved in your children's lives. 
and take your children to church. If, if we can help people move in those directions, it will be better for all of us. Um, and that, that's the hard thing. You know, Mother's Day, and I don't want it to be like this. Mother's Day is, oh, yay, mom, I love my mom. And, you know, uh, Father's Day tends to be, you're not doing your job. <laughs> and, and I don't want it to be like that. And forgive me if it's come across like that. Um, t- today we do celebrate fathers, and especially our Heavenly Father, who instructs all of us and, and, and guides us and loves us that way, uh, as, as we know. I don't know what time you go to. Um, are we... Are we Really? We are way over time. All right. All right. Well, let's end with a prayer to our Heavenly Father. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we know that your name is used a lot in Scripture, but we find increasingly in our country that it's harder to find a father who is at home or even involved in the life of his children. We now Lord, know, Lord, that many children um, who live without fathers um, have issues, uh, social issues and emotional issues and, yes, even spiritual issues. We pray, Lord, today that not only do we honor fathers everywhere, and we also honor mothers who are going it alone, that you help us as the church, the body of Christ, to support one another, male and female, as we look to the younger generation to raise them in the faith. Thank you, Lord, for your gifts and for your generosity, for your love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to exude this love and faith to all those around us, especially children and the young. Bless all dads today and those who want to be dads and those who are looking forward uh, to that. Bless us all this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.